Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we continue our reflections into the great Christian thinkers through the years. We are in the 16th century. Uh, we just wrapped up a four-part series on the Jesuits, St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Francis Xavier, St. Peter Canisius, and St. Robert Bellarmine. And if there's any one thing we can be assured of as it relates to these four great Jesuits in the 16th century, is that they inspired many other great men to become saints, to study the faith in the same way uh, that they studied the faith. And uh, in particular, I'm thinking about a 20th century figure uh, Father Miguel Pro, Blessed Miguel Pro, another Jesuit who was influenced by these great Jesuits. So while this evening we are going to be talking about St. Charles Borromeo, uh, who is not a Jesuit, I thought we would briefly discuss Father Miguel Pro, who would have been highly influenced uh, by those Jesuits. And I will have this discussion with John O'Hara. John, great to have you with me another evening. No place I'd rather be on a Monday evening, Joe. <laughs> All right. You know, John, so I was just mentioning Father Miguel Pro, and it was not by design to talk about him this morning as of 8.30 last night. But I was in prayer, and I was in study, and I woke up early this morning uh, to get back into that prayer and study, preparing for this program. And I was really taken by Father Miguel Pro's story. And him being a Jesuit, him being influenced by the four Jesuits we have just been talking about. I thought we can talk about him a little bit and find that natural transition to then talk about St. Charles Borromeo. Now, John, as we talk about Father Miguel Pro, I will primarily be drawing from Patrick Madrid's work, Why Be Catholic, as, as the source to really hit the details of what his extraordinary two-year ministry was about after he was ordained. Now, he was ordained in 1925 at the age of 34, ordained in Mexico. We must remember, this was during a time in Mexico where there was a lot of anti-Catholic laws, right? So uh, in 1925, Father Miguel Pro, right after being ordained, received permission to minister undercover in Mexico City to Catholics suffering beneath the recently enacted anti-Catholic laws that made it illegal to celebrate Mass, hear confessions, baptize babies, and in any manner publicly profess the Catholic faith. So, as Patrick Madrid speaks to it, the Mexican authorities hunted him in vain, repeatedly confounded by his last-minute escapes an array of ingenious disguises. Listen to this. I love this. Father Pro masqueraded as a chauffeur, a garage mechanic, a street sweeper, a farm worker, and even a dapper cigar-smoking man-about-town in a straw boater and a flashy suit, enabling him to slip undetected into a situation in which he could clandestinely hear confessions, baptize babies, marry couples, pray with console, and encourage people, and most important, celebrate Mass. No danger was too daunting for Father Pro, as Patrick Madrid states. He goes on, Once... He donned a policeman's uniform and brazenly entered Mexico City's central jail, ostensibly to, quote-unquote, interrogate a Catholic prisoner. 
Leaning against the bars of the cell and pretending to jot down notes, he heard the condemned man's confession and unobtrusively gave him Holy Communion. Perhaps Father Pro's most audacious tactic was to impersonate an undercover police detective. He once arrived at a safe house where he had planned to secretly celebrate Mass only to find policemen outside surveilling the place. Rather than skedaddle, which would arouse suspicion, he strode right up to the clueless cops, pulled back the lapel of his coat quickly as if flashing his badge and informed them that he believed a priest was hiding inside the house and he was going inside to search it. Once inside, he stuffed his priestly vestments, mask kit, and other incriminating items into his satchel and minutes later stepped back outside feigning disappointment. False alarm, he sighed, and then left. He noted in his diary that he received two superb military salutes from the policemen. <laughs> Eventually, though, as the story goes, John, the police caught up with Father Pro, framing him for a crime he had no part in or even knowledge of. And without even a show trial, the Mexican president, Callez, ordered the priest's summary execution by firing squad to make an example of him. And as Madrid wraps up here, it was on the morning of November 23rd, 1927, after forgiving and blessing the rifleman, Father Pro was led from his cell. He knelt in prayer for a few minutes and rising, refused a blindfold and stood calmly in front of a bullet-scarred adobe wall, facing his executioners with arms outstretched. With a rosary in one hand and a small crucifix in the other, he cried out, Vivo Cristo Rey! Long live Christ the King! As the volley of bullets cut him down. Calle's order that the execution be filmed and photographed for propaganda purposes was a serious miscalculation. It backfired when the Mexican people's reaction to the graphic pictures was the opposite of what Calles had expected. The streets of Mexico City along the route of Father Pro's funeral procession were thronged with thousands of Mexican Catholics silently protesting his death. They conducted the martyr's body through the streets, attired in his priestly cassock and surplice, a capital crime under the anti-Catholic laws at the time. And in 1988, Miguel Pro was beatified by Pope John Paul II. Amen. I have a little Father Pro story of my own. My mm, own. You mm, mind if I tell of it? Of course, of course. Well, in the late 90s, I was a teacher of confirmation uh, where I taught, Bell Gardens. That's in East L.A., Mexican almost 100%. And uh, I had about uh, 35 youngsters in my class studying for confirmation, and one young man was a real pain in the neck. Mm -hmm. He was not <laughs> a good student, and he also misbehaved. And yeah, yeah. he was corrected by me a lot of times, and we were going to take our confirmation patron saint, and who are you going to pick, young man? And he said, Miguel Pro. Who's he? Never heard of him. Mm. Well, <clears throat> he did take Miguel Pro's name, and he did wrote a paper on him like I had him all do. And that's the first time I ever heard of Miguel Pro. Huh. And this young man, uh, he was a good Catholic years after that. Mm. And I'm, I, I, I was really quite impressed, you know? Sure, and, sure. And uh, he brought to my attention Father Miguel, and there's that photograph of Father Miguel with his arms outstretched, moments before he was martyred. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. And and also, John, we should note that the initial firing squad did not kill him. They had to come up to him at uh, point-blank range to kill him. Certainly, it knocked him down. But there's another picture of one of those members of the firing squad shooting him at point-blank range. And as Patrick Madrid just talked about, those pictures that uh, President Calles thought would be a lesson for the country of Mexico um, backfired. Uh, what it did was 
really increased devotion. And what is going on here, John? Well, what have we said about the blood of the martyrs? Is it not the seed of our faith? Is it not the seed of what we believe in? Huh? The seed of the church. Why? Because you can give a lot of proofs about the existence of God. You can be very good in handing on the faith. But as Benedict XVI has reminded us, there's no one greater proof and no one greater reminder about the existence of God than when one lays down their life for God. Go back to one of our earlier shows, and I forget, it was either Tertullian or Origen who said... Tertullian, yes, right, yes. Right, Tertullian, yes. The uh, seed of the church is, is the martyr's blood. That's right. It was worded better than I just said it, but that's... Yeah. Well, the key phrase that Tertullian used was effective Christian seed, a seed that produces more sacrificial love. Amen to that. And amen, John, to Blessed Miguel Pro, Blessed Father Miguel Pro. What a heroic heroic man, certainly a man that we can all learn from. Speaking of learning, uh, speaking of great saints, there's another man we are to talk about, and that is St. Charles Borromeo. Let me go back to my youth. Yeah. I was in St. Charles Parish in San Carlos, mm, California. Mm. That's where I was raised, and that's where I went to grammar school, and the church is still there. That's where my mom and dad were buried. My sisters were married anyway. That, so St. Charles has played a part in my upbringing, shall we say, okay? Oh, amen amen to that. And as we were talking before, John, we have talked about a lot of great Christian thinkers. We have talked about a lot of great saints. Um, and I think we even noted last week with St. Robert Bellarmine that, that this was a man like that of Canisius who just, he had his hand in so many different things. And yet, here we are with St. Charles Borromeo, another man who had so many offices— had so many roles, was wearing so many hats, I, I could not believe what he was being asked to do. But, John, before we get into any of that, why don't we get a snapshot of who this man was? He was born in 1538, October 1538, and to marvelous parents. His father was a well-to-do count, and his mother was a Medici, and she was the older sister of Pope Pius IV. So uh, there's connections. He mm. was not Pope when he was born, but he became Pope later on. St. Charles Borromeo was tonsured at the age of 12. That means he's a minor cleric, not ordained by any means. Mm -hmm. And comes from a very wealthy family. And he went to a good university. However, he had a speech impediment. Mm. And uh, so they thought he was slow. And he really didn't get his doctor's degree until he was 22 when both of his parents had died. And he was a second son, so the older brother took over the family and its many, all of its money and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then his uncle became Pope, and the uncle made him a cardinal, not a bishop, but a cardinal. I mean, you mm -hmm. can vote for the Pope. And he moves him right into Rome, where he begins to work with the, uh, with, with the new Pope on a whole bunch of different areas, that areas of catechesis and organizing the Vatican. He, mm -hmm. was, he was in Rome. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the Pope decided immediately in his papacy, I'm going to re, we have to finish the Council of Trent. And so he, we've already had two sessions of Trent. There were three altogether. And St. Charles Borromeo begins, the, he's the primary organizer of session number three. And this was a real hard thing to get together because you have a lot of factions within the church. <clears throat> but anyway, he does bring them together. And this was, the third session was the one that reformed the clergy established seminaries, the bishop must live with inside the diocese, and incidentally, he was made the administrator of the Diocese of Milan, the wealthiest and largest diocese in Christendom at that time. He's not the bishop, but he's mm -hmm. running the place, and he's not living there. There hadn't been a bishop living there in 80 years in Milan. So the 
Consul gets concluded, the older brother dies, and he's kind of expected to take over the family, which means he'd have to get married to have an heir. Yeah. And he says, no, I'm going to pass this entirely on to a cousin, which he does, and he gets ordained a priest. So now he's a priest, and he tries to put into effect the final session of the Council of Trent. Uh, he also knew a little bit of music. He was not a musician, but he got Palestrina's Mass uh, composed. He didn't compose it, but he, mm-hmm. he made sure that there was funding for it. And then... His uncle dies, and a new pope comes in, and this new pope says, you got to continue working in Rome. You're very effective for us. He says, I really want to go to Milan. Mm-hmm. And this pope lets him go to Milan. So now, for the first time in 80 years, Milan has a resident bishop. Mm-hmm. And there he travels around, and he organizes seminaries, and he organizes the diocese, and um, very effective. And there is an assassination attempt on him, kind of like Oscar Romero. Yeah, yeah. Another, actually a priest who comes in when he's at prayer, with a pistol and shoots him, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but uh, the, he, he, he didn't exactly miss, but it just grazed him and got mm-hmm. stuck in the clothing or whatever. And uh, he recovered from that, and he went on to uh, work on Milan. Just to make a long story short, he died at age forty-six. Oh, there was a couple of famines happened, mm-hmm. and he organized the food distribution. Uh, lived quite poorly, although I mean, he, I mean, that's a he had a big house to live in, but he sold a lot of the furnishings to help the poor. And at age 46, a young man, uh, even for those times, he died. I think he died just from overwork. He fasted a lot, and the Pope, he was, don't, you know, take care of yourself. Yeah. And he, But he had things to do. Yeah. And so... Yeah, you, you know, you were talking about the famine there, John. It's worth noting that a lot of priests, and, and in some cases, other leaders of the Catholic Church were, were bailing, and he stayed back. Yes, he did. Um, he stayed back to minister to the poor, and... Like pretty much every other saint we've talked about, John, he had a great heart for the poor. You had mentioned when he was 12, he'd received the tonsure. At that very young age, um, he had challenged his father to give more money uh, to the poor, to give more money to those who were most in need. So he had a deep sensitivity to Christ living in the poor at a very young age. And so this would certainly play itself out uh, through the course of his life. He was quite close to English people. And I think he did go to England for a while. He is considered to be one of the founders of the College of Douay. We've heard of Douay Reims. Yes, yes. And as you mentioned earlier, he actually was good friends of an English saint. Uh, his name was St. Robert Sherwin. Now, he, this guy gave a talk at this college, and 18 months later, he was hung at Tyburn. Now, this was not in, you know, this was like in Italy. Yeah, a, a hanging that would influence his life, right? I mean, what did we talk about earlier? But the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So here you have St. Charles Borromeo meeting this man and ultimately being impacted by having met this man um, because of him laying his life down. So important. Um, John, I want to go back to the Council of Trent and that last session and make a couple of points here. You know, this last session, as you touched upon a few of them, I want to get to all of the um, decrees and the, 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 the pieces that were talked about. First, that it defined original sin. Uh, second, uh, that it decreed the perpetuity of the marital tie. Uh, third, that it pronounced anathema against those who rejected the invocation of saints or the veneration of relics, or who denied the existence of purgatory or the validity of indulgences. This last session also, John, as you touched upon, dealt with Episcopal jurisdiction, the education of seminaries, and uh, the discipline for the clergy. Now, it is to remember that every great council saw its share of controversy, huh? And this council certainly uh, was not without its own share of 
uh, controversy. In fact, that last session almost broke up several times. But because of the diplomacy of uh, St. Charles Borromeo, because of his ability to handle uh, both sides of the aisle, if you will, he was able to bring them together. And this is all very important to note because I think we see a little bit of this going on today with the two more recent synods on the family. Huh? There's been a lot of back and forth, but this is necessary. You need to be, as Pope Francis has said, very honest, very candid, because if all the truth is not on the table, uh, then the truth that is in the heart of man will not be discussed, right? So very important. Yeah, if you're an American, you're certainly aware of partisan bickering. He was the guy who, in the middle of this, brought them together. He was the negotiator, the man who said, come on, we have to come up with a resolution, we have to come up with a resolution in a timely manner, and he got them to come up with something which was acceptable. And as we were talking about, this is one of the great councils of the church, yes. the Council of Trent. I mean, it's right up there with Nicaea and some of the great ones. And how important is it, John, that as we are talking about this, uh, the Council of Trent and St. Charles Borromeo, to not forget about the people behind the councils, the, the, the people that make the councils tick, the people that make the councils work. And this is why we do um, hit the pause button to reflect upon the importance of St. Charles Borromeo and his diplomacy, and certainly how he was able to bring people together. He so, was an excellent example of an administrator. Yeah. He, uh, he could be in charge of an, or, of an organization and get things done. He did that in Milan as well. He was the founder of CCD, the, you know, and he, bro he wrote the catechism, or he was instrumental in getting the catechism written, which Count which Trent wanted to have done. And uh, he had his seminaries all set up in Milan, and he was, he was a hands-on bishop. He walked around, and people saw him. I mean, this diocese was extensive. It went up into Switzerland, where there were Calvinists and Zwinglius, if mm -hmm. you remember from a few sessions yeah, back. Yeah. And he uh, brought some of them back into the church, and uh, he was uh, just a great example of someone who could run a diocese. He founded a fraternity uh, for religious education for children, John, which... You just mentioned CCD, yeah. uh, the phrase Sunday school, that originates right. with St. Charles Borromeo. In fact, at its peak, he was overseeing over 740 Correct. Sunday schools. Extraordinary, John, extraordinary. And why do I bring this up? Well, it would be very easy for a bishop to, in his busyness, to focus on adult stuff. And yet, what St. Charles Borromeo teaches us is the need to be present to the whole body of Christ. Correct, Those... and he got a bunch of catechists involved, not just priests. Yes, but yes. Yes, lay catechists. Yeah, you, you can't do Sunday school and run that number of Sunday schools, run 740 schools of CCD without lay catechists. And this, again, was something original to his time, John. Yes. Um, and I would dare say something that was lost up until after Vatican II, really. Yeah. The, the 70s and the 80s, we started to see more of it, and certainly today, I think it's a part of the renewal of the Church, uh, lay involvement in Sunday school, CCD, Christian religious instruction, call it what you will. Yes. Um, but again, his presence to the youth, his presence to the need for them to be catechized, his presence to the need for all people to be informed on the doctrines of the faith, he was charged to implement within his diocese the decrees that came from the Council of Trent. Yes, he was a great diplomat, as we just talked about, John, but he was also someone who understood, as any good pastor would, what it means to 
catechize souls, the importance of catechizing souls, because the deeper you go in understanding the person of Jesus Christ, the more you're going to develop your relationship in and with Jesus Christ. Another interesting little deal is he, I think he confirmed St. Aloysius Gonzaga, another he did. Jesuit. Yes, 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 he did. When, yes. when Aloysius Gonzaga was, I think, only 12 years old. Yes, uh, yes. And, uh, yeah, so... Uh, you know, he knew lots of powerful people. He came from powerful people, and he could have had a life of just whatever you want. And he chose the life he did. He did. There's a great quote here. I mean, he was very present to what you were just talking about, John. This is, uh, listen to what he says to one Archbishop of Braga when Charles Borromeo visited him. He said, You know what it is to be the nephew of a pope and a beloved nephew. Nor are you ignorant of what it is to live at the court of Rome. The dangers are infinite. What ought I to do, young as I am and without experience? Oh, but God has given me ardor for penance and an earnest desire to prefer him to all things. And I have some thought of going into a monastery to live as if there were only God and myself in the world. But be rest assured, I long only one thing, to do the will of God. And if the will of God is to be in Rome, then let me serve Rome. God bless him. Amen. That reminds me a little bit of St. Gregory the Great. He was Pope, and he wanted to live in a monastery. He was fabulously wealthy yeah. for those times, and he chose a life of bishop and activity as well as prayer. Yeah, it's interesting, John, you mentioned St. Gregory the Great, and it reminds me of something as it relates to the title Doctor of the Church, if you were to go back into 1298, Pope Boniface VIII declared for the four original doctors of the Church, right? Uh, St. Gregory the Great, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, and St. Jerome. I bring this up because it's not until 1568 that Pope Pius V declares the next five doctors of the Church. And who are they? St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory Nazianzus, St. Athanasius, and St. Thomas Aquinas. This is all relevant because of what we talked about last week. Timing. Timing is everything. The Church wanted to harness its focus into what these great teachers that were elevated to doctors of the Church had to teach us. If it was contemplation, contemplation. If it was doctrine, doctrine. If it was a deeper uh, systematic understanding of the faith and its Christology, study of Christ, study of the Church, study of the Trinity, you know, it says, hey, let's look at Thomas Aquinas. All of these things are relevant because in the timing of them, there's a point to be had, and that point simply is Christ wants to bring our attention to something. And so, again, very important. I'm looking up at the clock, John, and I don't know if you had any closing thoughts. Gets me about these guys, and it's humbling, is how how active they were. Contemplation mm-hmm. and activity together. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, a great combination, and the way they could do it, the energy they have. I mean, I, uh, using your time wisely is, yeah. is a gift. Yeah. I wish I had it. <laughs> yeah, amen. And you know, for me, John, when I read about St. Charles Borromeo, the thing that strikes me is that If he is the patron saint of catechists, as we know he is, then he is so because of his love for Jesus Christ. That is correct. Really, the catechesis was not only an outgrowth of that, but also of a man steeped in prayer. And Mm -hmm. another kind of golden thread of all of these great Christian thinkers, they were able to bring insight into the life of the Church in both its doctrine and uh, practical aspects of it because they were men rooted in prayer. And and with, with, you know, the vocation issues we have today... 
We need a lot of active lay people in catechesis and other aspects of parish work and Catholic work. You know, there's plenty of work around Amen. for competent people to do it. Amen. And of course, we need our priests, and they need us. Yeah, yeah. Transformation came about from the hands of St. Robert Bellarmine because of how he empowered so many others to empower others, yes. right, uh -huh. by the grace of God. And so we do have that role. If we want transformation to take place in our local parishes and our local diocese and beyond, we have to uh, work in the tall grass, so to speak, John, get our hands dirty, or as Pope Francis would say, get our boots dirty, and be, be able to do whatever it takes to advance the kingdom of God. And yes, catechesis, but anything that God calls us to. Correct, yes. Amen. Let us go ahead and close with a word of prayer, John. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.